0: Dress listeners, welcome to yet another edition of Fashion History Now. Um, Cass, as of recent, we have been really enjoying um, interviewing kind of more contemporary players in the world of fashion and learning about what they're doing in terms of fashion history now, creating fashion history now. Um, But it's been kind of a hot minute since we have discussed (laughs) books, articles, products, and whatnot of our own choosing. So that is actually what we're going to get into today. Yes,
1: yes, yes. It's been a while, but we, like April said, we've had so much fun meeting
0: people who are
1: making fashion history today. But we wanted to jump back on here and share some exciting um, who, what, when things to do today um, to um, enjoy over the
0: summer. So here we go. All right. Well, um, my first topic that I would like to talk to you about today is a rather warm, fuzzy topic. So maybe it's not necessarily suited to summer per se, but (laughs) Cass, would you like to be my neighbor?
1: I would love to be your neighbor. I sing (laughs) that song every morning when I open my blinds, by the way.
0: (laughs) So obviously you also watched Mr. Rogers growing up. Yep. So, for some of our younger or perhaps international listeners who might not be familiar with the television program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, um, just a little bit of background. It was and remains this sort of iconic children's television show, which began airing nationally in the U.S. during the late 1960s, I think specifically 1968. It had a existed in previous incarnations before that, I think in Canada and then specifically locally in Pittsburgh, but it was in 1968 that it started to air nationally, which it did all the way up until 2001. So you would really be hard pressed to find somebody who grew up in the U.S. during this, you know, thirty. Five-ish year period, who doesn't already know and love Mr. Rogers, who really became famous for this beginning of his show, right? <laughs> he yep. sings the song that Cass was just referencing, um, which is about being his neighbor. And while he's doing this, he's kind of returning home, coming into the interior of his home, and he's slipping on a cardigan sweater and he's exchanging his outdoor shoes, his more dress shoes for casual sneakers. So you know this whole thing, this whole setup might be not the most thrilling to children of now of 2021 who grew up with you know with the internet, with screen time on iPhones and apps that are really geared towards children's edutainment, um, you know education and entertainment. It was
1: so groundbreaking in so many ways.
0: Right? Yeah. So, but for many of us who are, are a bit older, Mister Rogers was really a childhood friend of sorts, and he is. Considered such a part of American culture that one of his signature sweaters is currently in the collection of the National Museum of American History, and the museum is part of the Smithsonian. So, um, what I do want to talk about today is this fascinating article that I read recently in Smithsonian Magazine that's kind of touching on the fact that they have one of his signature sweaters. And also it goes into a little bit of the history of how these sweaters came to be on the program because he had a whole rotating wardrobe of sweaters. It wasn't just one. And the first season, I think they were button-ups, cardigans, um, but after that, they were zip-up cardigans, and I did not know this. Apparently, they were all hand knit by his mother up until oh, that's lovely. I know <laughs> up until her death in 1981, and so for the next decade, into the 90s, they were still using this same cache of cardigans. But of course, Cass, you have worked as a, as, a, as a costume designer and set costumer for a very long time. What happens after a decade of use of these same cardigans?
1: (laughs) A decade of use of the same cardigans. I mean... If it's made out of wool, it's going to get moth-eaten inevitably. Um, it's going to wear and tear at the elbows. Yeah, there's all kinds of things that can happen when you wear something a lot.
0: Yeah. So, and that's exactly what happened by the 1990s, early 1990s. A lot of these cardigans um, were really wearing out and and weren't considered up to par, you know, for screen time. Essentially, so the production team had to scramble to figure out how they're going to replace these items in Mr. Rogers' wardrobe. And some local knitters in Pittsburgh where the show was still filmed initially kind of lent their skills, but the producers didn't feel like these sweaters really working for television. Um, The colors weren't right. Maybe they were a little bit too hard for him to get off and on. They tried sourcing off-the-rack sweaters, but apparently in the 90s, (laughs) they were saying that these were really hard to come by because zip-up cardigans for men just weren't fashionable, so hardly anybody was making them. And then I love this next part of the story. Um, One of the producers of the show was walking down the street one day, and she saw her local postal worker And she was like, ah, his sweater is perfect. (laughs) So she stops him on the street. He takes the sweater off, lets her check the label. She starts contacting the manufacturers of the sweaters that the U.S. Postal Service is using. Um, wow. (laughs) Right? So one would think now, like, oh, now there's mass access to all these zip-up cardigans. Problem solved, right? No. There's a whole other bit to the story about how from the 90s into the 2000s, like, Mr. Rogers got his sweaters. So, the color palette of his sweaters had really been established over the previous decades. So, now the wardrobe team could only order white sweaters that, in turn, they had to hand dye, which they did in these giant restaurant soup pots. And when they started doing this, they also discovered that the fabric of the zippers was resistant to the dye like you know the little strips that it, 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 like adhered the zipper to the sweater so then they had to go in and hand color with permanent markers <laughs> in this specific shade of the sweater to match and then they also had to go in and alter the collars of these mass produced sweaters because they weren't exactly the same style of collar that Mr. Rogers' mother had knitted they also had to remove the manufacturer's labels you know it, it, I don't know. My mind was kind of blown that all of this work went on behind the scenes to kind of recreate the look of the original sweater that that Mr. Rogers mom made. So
1: I love that. We could have a whole segment called Behind the Scenes, have you, about oh. where we go into all of these behind the scenes stories yeah. about like iconic pop culture wardrobe. Yeah. Like Mr. Rogers' sweater. That's really fascinating. I would have had no idea that that was the case. Thank you for sharing.
0: Yeah, and, and I just, um, one little quick qu- quote from a couple different people. One of the fellow actors on set um, that actually played the postman, he said of... The sweaters, he said that the sweaters were always more than a costume or a prop. They were a symbol of play clothes and that Mr. Rogers was meeting children on their level, which is very charming. And also one of the Smithsonian curators uh, remarked that Mr. Rogers' style of comfort and warmth of one-on-one conversation is conveyed in that sweater. So I just thought that this was such a little sweet, charming tidbit of childhood nostalgia, and I wanted to share it with all of our listeners.
1: Yeah, and there's an excellent documentary. I think it's on HBO about Mr. Rogers, Won't You Be My Neighbor, if you're interested in learning more uh, about uh, this wonderful, wonderful man who really was so groundbreaking in his engagement with children at a period when you really didn't engage with them on this level. So um, love, love, Mr. Rogers. And while we're on the topic of childhood pop culture icons, this actually ties perfectly into an Instagram account that I want to direct all of our listeners to a pop culture fashion icon uh, who recently opened an Instagram account. And if you're not following at real Miss Piggy, you are missing (laughs) out.
0: (laughs) Everything you needed in your life is now here. (laughs)
1: <laughs> or you didn't even know you needed. I mean, honestly, when I found this account, and I think it was Vicki Pass who posted it, a past dress guest, and I was just blown away. Since debuting in Jim Henson's The Muppet Show in 1976, Miss Piggy rose to meteoric success. She became this beloved star. She's an infamous diva, which is also hilarious of the stage and screen. And she's always had this impeccable fashion sense. And this account is just wonderful. It's fashion combined with Miss Piggy's signature humor. So, you know, there's this image that she recently posted in it. And she says, she writes, many have said that moi is a pillar of the performing community. They're right, of course. And to prove it, I regularly pose with pillars. (laughs) <laughs> As seen here. <laughs> so she's wearing this like white Grecian inspired kind of VA like pleated and draped gown with pearls and purple gloves. And she's leaning against this pillar. Um, there's also high fashion photo shoots. You know, she has her flowing blonde mane. In one photo, she's wearing what looks like a DVF, a printed wrap dress, or a version of it. And she says, I simply love the runway. You're the center of attention. Dozens of adoring fans gasp when you appear. And best of all, it's a short walk in six-inch heels. That's a good thing. So just, it's just really, really fun. I highly suggest you follow. And I would, I'm just putting this out there. I would love to have her as a guest on the show. Right. <laughs> Can you imagine? Please um, come visit Miss Piggy. Yeah. Or at the very least, maybe her stylist and costume designer. She's had many over the years. Callista Hendrickson was responsible for her iconic looks in the early phases of the Muppet years. Polly Smith started designing costumes for the Muppets in 78. After Hendrickson, she still, I think, designs for Sesame Street. She also did the costumes April of Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal. Wow. And she's credited as one of the three inventors of the sports bra. (laughs) Literally patented it. It's super interesting. So I'm going to work on getting uh, her on the show for sure.
0: That would be amazing. I mean, Jim Henson created this whole universe of characters, not only the Muppets, but even outside of that, that are so central to kind of like American childhood, I would argue. I loved watching The Muppet Show when I was a kid. I was a huge Muppet Show fan.
1: Yeah. And I think Rachel Frost, who was a hat maker, who was one of our past guests, she actually, one of her early career jobs in her career was working at the Jim Henson Studios, which I believe were in London. I could be wrong. But yeah, I mean, it's such a central part of of so many people's upbringings. There was a fabulous exhibit here a couple years ago on Jim Henson's career and really just the role that his work continues to play um, in our societies today.
0: Um, one of my very favorite objects that we have at FIT Special Collections is actually the Muppet Style Guide. Ooh. And it's very cool. It's definitely from the 70s. And what it is is telling you, like, all the kind of information that you might need if you were participating and licensing Muppet products. So, for oh. instance, like— this character is proportionally this tall to this character um, and gives you like a little bit of details about their, the, like the colors that they should be. Like one of the things in there is it tells you what PMS color Miss Piggy's eyeshadow is. All these <laughs> fun, quirky little details about all things Muppets. So, oh, that's wonderful. I like to bust that out when people, when classes come to visit. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of entire universes, dress listeners, you heard it here first. The metaverse is coming. And Cass, I want to ask you if you're familiar with this term metaverse. I'm familiar
1: with the term meta and universe. And I'm assuming those things have something to go, something to do with each other. So enlighten me because I have no idea what you're actually talking about.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So this whole concept was new to me and super fascinating. And I was reading about it recently in this quite lengthy article in Business of Fashion that was written by Doug Stevens. Uh, The article, if anybody wants to head over there and check it out, is entitled The Metaverse Will Radically Change Retail. And again, this article is substantive, so I am just kind of going to give you the, the, the Cliff Notes version. But basically what he's talking about is that while virtual reality at the moment is kind of relegated to gaming, and entertainment platforms, one of the, his arguments is that some of the, quote, most momentous instruments of technical and societal change have first been perceived as toys, right? Or, or playthings. And he talks about how, you know, in the mid-70s, the first mobile phones weighed four pounds. Uh, they served <laughs> one purpose, right? To make and receive calls. But now our iPhones... Fit in our pockets. Just a few decades later, and and this was this kind of also blew my mind. Your iPhone now has a hundred thousand times more computing power than the Apollo Eleven spacecraft. Holy moly! Right. So stay with me here. This really got me thinking, and it's complicated. But Stephen says, put as simply as possible, the metaverse is a collective, persistent, parallel reality created by stitching together of all virtual worlds to form a universe that we can seamlessly traverse. So I think the key word here is persistent, right? So what he's talking about is more than than how the internet functions today as kind of like this static space where we go to the place and, you know, buy the thing and then it ships to us. But what he's really talking about is, like, this immersive physical world. And a good example of that could be some of these gaming platforms like Fortnite, where characters and avatars exist and, and you, it, you're you participating in it, like, almost like real life. And what we're starting to see right now is that uh, fashion brands are kind of, like— dipping their toe into some of these worlds. Um, I thought I found it really, really interesting that Travis Scott, the rapper, did a five series concert in Fortnite not too long ago. And apparently 50 million users attended the series of concerts. <laughs> wow. Right? Um, so we're here to talk about fashion, of course. So how does this kind of apply to fashion and the future of retail? Well, um Stevens k- kind of is saying You know, one of his arguments, and I'm quoting him here, is the creation of the metaverse will allow us to break free from the current industrial form and function of physical stores and move light years beyond even the best digital shopping experiences of today. Why would one create a virtual replica of a Canada Goose store when in the metaverse you could potentially shop for a Canada Goose coat from inside an Arctic exploration experience led by a Iditarod champion and Canada Goose spokesperson Lance Mackey. Marketers, store designers, merchandisers, and more will have to begin thinking very differently about what a store is. And with the increasing amounts of time spent in the metaverse, the ratio between the virtual and physical possessions we now own will increase dramatically. I mean, who wants to wear the same virtual outfit to two different virtual parties in the same virtual weekend? And I just I just think this is, there's a lot to think about here, right? Yeah, I'm like, it's, it's fascinating, but also terrifying. Yeah, it's kind of like Blade Runner and all these, all those Blade Runner, science Wally. fiction movies come yeah. true, right? And, and, you know, we've already kind of briefly discussed cyber fashion on um, dress before in the past, but we're seeing more and more of these companies come out with digital-only fashion products for sale. And you can kind of think of it as like a digital overlay that makes an outfit that you can quote-unquote dress yourself with, whether that be an avatar or an actual in-real-life photo of yourself that the digital outfit gets put on your body, and then you can repost it on social media. And And past dressed guest, Krishna Lair, has actually written about this for Vogue and tried on some of these digital outfits. So you can head over there and kind of see what he's talking about He specifically focuses on a Croatian brand called Tribute's Cyber Fashion Offerings. But even now, Gucci has recently entered the digital cyber fashion game.
1: How much do these outfits cost when you're talking Gucci? Because are they going to start charging us ridiculous amounts of money? (laughs) <laughs> in cyber fashion world. All
0: right. So some some things some brands can be expensive. I've seen some prices for a file be like $700 for things. Oh my goodness. But for instance, um in terms of Gucci, you can actually buy a pair of Gucci's virtual 25 sneakers, which according to the company are meant to be worn online in virtual reality social platforms for the bargain basement price of 12.99. So, oh, okay. That. Right, it's interesting because it's like this has the
1: potential to democratize luxury fashion, uh, you know. But it's very clear that these luxury brands intend to keep the hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> because if everyone can afford it, it's no longer exclusive and it's no longer luxury. So that's super interesting to think about how that translates into a virtual world.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think the most in, like the most interesting thing about it is this like you know that term that he used persistent, right? Because it's going to be this separate virtual sphere where things are constantly happening 24 hours a day and and it really does feel like this natural progression of the internet internet retail plus social media as technology kind of pushes forward and uh, one of the things that I was thinking about is you know fashion frequently functions as this sort of aspirational desires of the consumer so what if it's not only aspiration that is kind of pushing purchases forward in in terms of like aspiration in terms of status, but what if it's also like this element of fear of missing out? FOMO, have you? Yeah, FOMO, (laughs) FOMO fashioned, right? So if this whole other virtual sphere of fashion is happening, in addition to your in real life ensemble, if you need a wardrobe for the digital you that's completely separate what is this? Is this, you know, is fear of missing out going to push fashion in this other direction? I don't know. I just thought it really interesting. I mean,
1: I'm going to go on record and say that as a fashion historian, I will be wearing only fashion history related garments. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: in this verse.
0: Because if you can have whatever you want, why not? Exactly.
1: Paco Ruban <laughs> chainmail or, you know, Christine Dior Venus gowns or Marie Antoinette panniers. I mean, the world is basically your oyster.
0: Yes, 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 yes. So so friends, um, you know, we are already kind of seeing, I think, many brands, maybe not all like go all in into cyber fashion, but we're already seeing a lot of brands transition towards away from brick and mortar flagship stores and into putting their marketing efforts into more brand experiences, like, you know, event spaces where they do film screenings and cocktail parties and meet and greets. But, you know, increasingly we might see these experiences transition online to extend their sort of experiential reach globally. And I think that's really, that's really what, what Stephen was trying to get out with this article. So,
1: yeah. And we've seen that a lot with COVID too. A lot of brands had to get super creative because they couldn't have in real life uh, runway shows anymore. So, we've seen some really creative, like alternatives to these traditional types of marketing and displays. So, I mean, I think it's really exciting, hope, you know, hoping that all of these brands consider their carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera, moving forward. Because even if it goes online, the carbon footprint does not disappear. Right. <laughs> so, it's super interesting to think of it from a sustainability a platform as well.
0: Yep, yep. So, uh, welcome to the metaverse, I guess, is what I'm saying.
1: April, our listeners know by now that you are a huge fan of jumpsuits. Yep. And our listeners might also remember the hilarious Bustle.com article that you discussed on our History of the Jumpsuit episode with Andrea Lauer last season. Mm -hmm. Um, It was entitled, Eight Struggles of Peeing While Wearing a Jumpsuit. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, how do I get this off anxiety? How will, um, I will find a way out without damaging this resolve. Um, I'm the great Houdini relief. It was really funny (laughs) um, and playful. But in all reality, that is like a huge issue that women in particular have. You like take your jumpsuit off and you're basically naked in the stall. Um, So, and I know I've been telling you and hinting at this for a while, April, but I'm very pleased to share with you and our other jumpsuit-wearing dress listeners that peeing while jumpsuit-wearing is no longer an issue. <laughs> Yay! Thanks to the launch of the groundbreaking new jumpsuit, the One Z, and that's the number one and the letter Z. And it's billed as the world's only functional onesie. The onesie is the first product from We Are Weld Workwear, the brainchild of Angelique Paul and Amelia Rivera, who are two Hollywood costumers with a combined 30 years of experience in the industry and wearing wearing coveralls, they knew the benefits and the issues of this go-to garment, and they, they have sought to make it functional and fashionable. So... They basically asked the question, how could humanity be faced with such a pressing problem? No (laughs) way to pee in a coverall. And how could this problem have gone unsolved for so long? Uh, We decided to give it a shot and try to find a solution. And their solution was the patent pending WizTech EasyZip technology that lets you pee with ease.
0: <laughs> uh, I was actually just telling some fellow fashion historians about this recently, and they're like, let us know when it's out.
1: Yeah, so it's on its way. It's basically, if you're wondering in your head, there's a zipper that's across your bouteille. And so uh-huh. you basically can unzip from the bottom half of the garment. It doesn't, it just unzips like the back flap, allows you to go and zip it back on um, with ease. So it's really, really cool. Woman owned and operated company designed and manufactured in the US. You know, they're really looking to take a fresh take on classic workwear and they want to protect, you know, our bodies while looking as good as possible. And they're really, really looking to make it inclusive, could fit anyone in all varieties of shapes and sizes. They're really working with, you know, keeping their supply chain transparent, fair wages, happy working facilities. So, all of these things, closed-loop production, all of these things that we support on So, super, super excited.
0: And can I order my onesie now?
1: <laughs> you can, yeah, you can learn more about the company and help support the launch of this incredible product on We Are Weld. That's We Are W-E-L-L-D on Instagram to learn more. So, um we will all check
0: that out. Awesome. I can't wait. I'm I'm headed there um immediately. I just had to write that down as a note. <laughs> okay. My last thing. Dress listeners, I'm not sure if we've ever really talked about this on the show. Cass knows this, of course, but I love to cook. It's one of my great hobbies. Um, whenever I travel abroad, one of the things I really like to do is um, go to cooking school for a day or two. So, you know, why? why bring back a bunch of stuff? I mean, don't get me wrong. Stuff is great too. But why not also bring back knowledge, right? So I try to go to cooking school when I'm out and about in the world. So it comes as no surprise that cookbooks are of great interest to me. And I did not know this recently, but Cass, did you know that Christian Dior has a cookbook? I feel like I've heard that, but I've never seen it. I've never
1: read it. So please tell me more.
0: Yes, yes. So dress listeners, if you have ever had that, played that little fantasy game of if you could have a dinner party with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? If Christian Dior was ever <laughs> on your list of dream guests to your hypothetical dinner party, you can get excited. Christian Dior, um, we we I think Cass and I both kind of knew this. He was a bit of a gourmand, just like Paul Paré was. And he was quite a good cook. But I didn't know until very, very recently that he actually had a cookbook of his very favorite recipes produced and published posthumously. So um, Dior, of course, died in 1957, and uh, this this cookbook came out in 1972, and it's called in French "La Cuisine Cosuma," or in English, that's kind of uh, translated to "Tailor Made Cuisine," and it is a collection of his very favorite recipes uh, for dishes, including a. Shocking number of egg dishes. So many egg dishes in the cookbook. (laughs) An interesting recipe for chervil soup. Um, A recipe for cold mullet, which is, of course, fish, topped with a fish jelly and crudités. Lamb's lettuce salad dressed with lard. And a rather intriguing chicken dish, which I just might have to try, which is stuffed with fromage blanc and truffles before it is flambéed with cognac and then roasted. So. The cookbook, and I was like, how do I get my hands on this? The cookbook was published as a limited edition when it was first published in 1972, only 4,000 copies. And today, to get your hands on one, which I clearly will not be doing as a hard copy, it's about $1,500. Um, oh, wow. So they're quite they're quite sought after. Um, and it's really beautiful. It has an embossed aluminum cover. The illustrations in the cookbook are actually contributed by famed illustrator Rene Gruau. Wow. And get this, there's even 10 ultra luxury copies. Like the first 10 in, in the numbered edition of 4,000 contained a suite of Lithography is I grew out instead of just the printed illustration. So don't worry though. The reason why I'm bringing this up is to not, you know, just tease you all with this little bit of culinary trivia. If $1,500 is outside of your cookbook budget, as it is mine, and I'm sure <laughs> most of ours. Uh, fear not, because last year in 2020, Dior did us a solid and actually created a digital version of the cookbook, which is available for free for download. And we will put a link to it in the episode description. Uh, you can also just Google Dior cookbook, Le Cuisine Kusuma or Dior cookbook. Um, and there's more than a few articles that will pop up that were, were written last year about the digital release of the cookbook. So, uh, Cass, you and I are going to be seeing each other next week. So I propose that maybe we make an event of this, Dinner a la Dior. I was going to say that or suggest that you actually cook for me when we're in Paris in August Ah. for
1: our dress tour of Paris, which dress listeners still have a few spots left. So if you're interested in joining us for a Rue de la Paix tour, you know, walking the grounds and picnicking at Versailles, et cetera, et cetera, we have so many wonderful things planned. We'd love for you to join us. You can find out more on likemindstravel.com.
0: Yes. And then, you know, uh, veux-tu flambe en poulet avec moi (laughs) Wee <laughs> wee! <Oui, oui. laughs> <laughs> that does it for us today, dress listeners.
1: Thank you so much for joining us on our fashion history now, and we will talk to you on Tuesday.
0: Dress: The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.